Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Short Stacks, our shorter conversations with authors about their process and their books. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today we're joined by author and journalist Garrett M. Graff. Garrett's brand new book comes out on Tuesday, September 10th, and it's called The Only Plane in the Sky, an oral history of 9-11. We get to talk about this incredible book on The Short Stacks today, and there are no spoilers. Everything we talk about on today's show can be found in the show notes. Use the link to shop for the books we've discussed and read the articles we've mentioned. Plus, you'll find our social media accounts in the show notes as well, so you can always be connected to the stacks. If you love this show and want more of it, check out our Patreon page. You can support the work we're doing here and earn perks for yourself like our virtual book club. To learn more, go to patreon.com slash the stacks. If you like what you hear, please take a moment to rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts, especially on Apple Podcasts. Okay, now it's time for our spoiler-free conversation with Garrett M. Graff. All right, you guys, I am joined today by journalist and author Garrett M. Graff. Garrett's newest book is out tomorrow, Tuesday, September 10th, and it's called The Only Plane in the Sky, An Oral History of 9-11. Garrett, welcome to the Stacks. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited. So we're going to start where we always start, which is in about 30 seconds. Can you tell us about your book? Sure. So this is uh, the oral history of September 11th. It is 480 voices talking about their experiences on 9-11 just that one day starting in the morning and going through the evening coast to coast, um, Shanksville, New York, the Pentagon. Uh, Capitol Hill with the president on Air Force One in the mountain bunkers around Washington, as well as air traffic controllers and school children and all sorts of other people around the country. And the goal with the book is to really capture how Americans lived 9-11, not what happened on 9-11, which we sort of all know and which we are you know, familiar with from uh, from history, but really what it was like to experience the day. Yeah. I mean, so I was in high school. I was a sophomore in high school on 9-11. And I'm sure whenever you talk about this book and going forward as the book comes out in the world, everyone will tell you exactly where they were and what they were doing. But 
I really felt like one of the things that this book does so well is kind of capture that feeling of like, I, for me, it was like a lot of anxiety. I grew up in California. So it was kind mm-hmm. of like, what's going on? Where are we? Like, what's happening now? By the time I woke up, like the, it was already underway, you know? And so mm-hmm. I felt like your book does a really great job of capturing those feelings of anxiety and, and uncertainty and also like terror. Like it was really mm-hmm. a scary day. Um, why did you feel compelled to tell this story and why now? Yeah. So I, I'm a journalist who covers national security and almost all of my career I have spent writing about the impact of 9-11, sort of all that changed thereafter. The FBI, counterterrorism, the rise of the surveillance state, the CIA, you know, the military, uh, and so on. And I wrote for Politico magazine in 2016, which was the 15th anniversary of the attack, an oral history of being aboard Air Force One on 9-11, which is where this book actually gets its title. We're the only plane in the sky. Mm. And that I went out uh, in that piece and interviewed 28 people who were with President Bush uh, or around President Bush uh, in the government that day. Um, The president, of course, was in Sarasota, Florida, reading to a classroom of elementary school students and then spent the day sort of hustled aboard Air Force One, um, trapped, you know, seven miles above the earth in this metal tube cut off from most of the rest of the country. And the reaction to that piece in 2016 was uh, astonishing. Um, it was it very quickly became the most read story in Politico's history. And I started, you know, the morning that it posted began to get letters from people, you know, dozens the first day, um, ultimately hundreds uh, of letters from readers. And two of them really stuck out in my mind. The first was from a mother who was a veteran and had two children. I think they were seven and nine at the time. Uh, And she said that she had printed out my article so that someday her children could read it and she could explain to them why mommy had left them to go off to war. Wow. And the second letter was also from another veteran. I think he was Army. And he had done three tours, two in Afghanistan, one in Iraq. And he... He was a little bit younger than you and had been in middle school in 9-11 and wrote to say that he had never understood the trauma of that day until he had read my article. And those two sort of experiences and reactions uh, just really sort of rattled around in my brain in the, you know, sort of what is this going to be like as a new generation grows up in the shadow of 9-11 and lives in the world that 9-11 created, but doesn't actually remember what the day was like? And, you know, we are this year ends up being sort of this oddly momentous year as 9-11 slips in our national consciousness from memory to history Hmm. as the first college class is starting that was born after 9-11. 
and we have the first uh, American servicemen and women uh, joining the military and being deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan this year to fight in a war that started before they were born, um, which is something that America has never experienced before. You know, every single person who fought in World War II remembers Pearl Harbor. Everyone right. who fought in the Civil War, you know, was there for Fort Sumter, you know, sort of remembers how the war started and sort of what they were fighting for. And my goal in this book was, you know, we say, we say never forget every year on 9-11. And what I fear that that has become now is this a sort of remembrance of the facts without remembering the experience that, you know, we say, okay, never forget the four flights and, you know, remember the twin towers, remember Shanksville, remember the right. Pentagon. Right. And what we don't remember is, you know, what, what you experienced, what I experienced, what people experienced at the twin towers, what people experienced in air traffic control, which was, just how terrifying and confusing that day actually was to experience and how terrifying and confusing it was to experience if you were present at the attacks mm -hmm. or if you were just someone waking up on the West Coast. Because we were uh, – one of the things that sort of stands out for me is th that's sort of hard to recapture until you're sort of looking – at that day is, you know, now we know what was transpiring and we know when we look back that it was all over in 102 minutes from the first crash to the collapse of the second tower. Um, and that on 9-11, none of us knew that. And that sort of well into the middle of the afternoon, uh, you know, people were worried about other planes in the sky. They were uh, worried about uh, you know, the second wave of the attack. Um, you know, we know now that Al-Qaeda was never able to strike U.S. soil again. We didn't know that on 9-11. I mean, there was sort of a real fear that, like, every day going forward, there was going to be a 9-11. You know, right. that there were sleeper cells all over the country and that you know, 9-12 might have had a different set of attacks, you know, that 9-13 might have had its own second set of attacks. Um, and and that, that, that sort of fear and trauma drove so much of the decision-making thereafter. Um, and that now, as we live in the world decided by that fear and trauma, I think it's really important to go back and capture that day. Right. So let me ask you, you're, uh, you're, you've written other books, you're a journalist, so you are like a professional writer. Why did you want to do oral history? Why didn't you want to take everything that other people had said and write the words yourself? Like what made you feel that oral history was the form for this story? It's a, it's a really good question. And, and I don't, uh, part of the answer is, I don't really know. This is the, <laughs> the, uh, this piece just sort of sprung into my mind as an oral history. Like it was never anything else in my mind. Um, and part of that, I think, is because the facts of the day are so well known that, you know, we sort of don't need 
we don't need, I think, another retelling of the facts of the day. Sure. Um, you know, there are books that have done that uh, very well. 102 Minutes, um, you know, is, is a classic on uh, from right after 9-11. You know, the 9-11 Commission spent millions of dollars and years of effort writing a incredibly compelling and highly detailed and deeply accurate factual account of what transpired on 9-11. Right. Um, but, but what I thought uh, sort of hadn't been done was something that would, you know, tell the day as people experienced it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you're putting, so I, you know, I read the book, I loved it. It's amazing. And you get to the end and you get to the sources section and it's kind of broken down. You've pulled some um, interviews and some statements from a bunch of different places, the 9-11 Memorial Museum, you know, different, different sources. And then you've also conducted some of the interviews yourself. So how did you decide kind of, I guess basically my question is, can you take me through kind of the process of putting this book together? How did you decide who you wanted to reach out to, to interview yourself, whose interviews you thought kind of stood on their own based on the text that was already there? I'm assuming some people have passed away since, so that makes it easier. Mm -hmm. I know some people are people like Dick Cheney, so I don't know if you had access to him, but kind of how did it all come together in this one thing? So I had, um, a really talented researcher who worked with me for um, uh, about a year and a half to gather the uh, sort of base materials of this book, and that there were um, there were a number of institutions. You na- you named a couple of them: the nine eleven Museum in New York, the nine eleven Tribute Center, the Flight ninety three National Memorial, the Pentagon Historian, the Capitol Historian. StoryCorps, C-SPAN, uh, and, and other places that did that had the good sense right after 9/11 in the years, um, uh, sometimes just weeks after 9/11, but certainly in the years after 9/11, to understand that these stories should be captured and and recorded for history. So we went out um, at the start of this project to sort of look at what that universe was. And we found, um, ultimately about 5,000 oral histories that existed and boiled that down sort of rather roughly to about 2000 that sort of captured different segments of the day. And then, Um, you know, spent a year going through those 2000 and uh, coming up with what are ultimately about 480 uh, voices in this book. And some of them are people that you follow morning to night. Um, Some of them are people who appear just once or twice for specific moments or specific observations. Right. And that was, you know, that those stories, as you can imagine, are just incredibly uh, moving and emotional and, and rich in their storytelling. And, um, you know, I'm sure a, a another writer who sat down with the same pile of material could have written another very good book using totally different quotes than the ones that I used. Yeah. And then sort of as I assembled those pieces, I was looking for the pieces that were missing. 
uh, one example was, you know, there wasn't really a project that had covered uh, the people who were in the White House bunker with uh, Dick Cheney on 9-11. Um, and so I went out and interviewed a number of them myself uh, or drew on, um, you know, other interviews that had been done with someone like Dick Cheney. And then a lot of the rest of it was uh, interviews that I um, wanted to fill in sort of a very specific hole in the the book. Um, so uh, ended up going out and interviewing Porter Goss, who was a congressman who uh, basically gaveled out Congress on 9-11, that I had sort of all of these congressional stories, but didn't actually have the guy who actually canceled Congress for the day. Right. Okay. Um, and so went out and asked him to tell just sort of that one story. Um, or um, uh, another uh, example um, was uh, I went out and interviewed Rob O'Neill, the uh, Navy SEAL who shot Osama bin Laden in that raid in Abbottabad in 2011 and asked him to sort of talk about both his day on 9-11 and then how uh, how he thought about 9-11 as part of the SEALs on that mission um, and, and ended up uh, with this sort of, to me, very surprising story that I was uh, found very moving about how you know, the SEALs, as they uh, went to go raid Abbottabad um, and attack bin Laden, um, they they really thought that they were going out on a suicide mission. Right. Um, they thought that they're flying deep into Pakistan, hostile territory. There was a good chance bin Laden was going to be either armed or had wired his house to explode. There was going to be you know, even if they successfully raided him, you know, there was going to be no way that they were going to be able to sneak back out of Pakistan and would probably be caught and killed. And they were sort of talking about like, well, why are we going out on this suicide mission? Mm -hmm. And they ended up talking about the people who jumped and fell from the towers on 9-11. Um, and said, you know, those Americans didn't sign up for a fight. Um, you know, they went to work that day for a normal day right. and found themselves in the middle of this fight. We signed up to fight and it's our duty to go and fight on their behalf. And that that really was actually a key part of the motivation for the SEALs on the Bin Laden raid. Hmm. God, so interesting. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? 
With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Well, I guess so here's there's one image that sticks in my mind from 9-11 that I don't think is touched on in the book. And I was curious as to why. Um the flag being raised on the pile, like kind of late in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. I don't think that any of that is mentioned in the book. And I wasn't sure if there was a reason for that. Uh, there wasn't. Um, there was no, uh, you know, there were sort of all sorts of things that I uh, left out of the book for uh, one reason or another. Um, the the book it actually started at the first draft of this book was actually more than twice as long. Oh, my God. I want to read it. Draft of it. <laughs> we um, need the uncut and, book. Yeah. Um, maybe the director's edition will yeah. come out on, on Blu-ray at some point. Yeah, the 20th um, anniversary of 9-11, you release yeah. the uncut. <laughs> <laughs> because the, there were just, you know, there were just so many stories. Right, um, I'm sure. And there were so, you know, even among the people whose story I tell in the book, you there are a lot of sort of incredible details from them that I uh, wish that I could have included in this, yeah. um, uh, you know, that, um, and, and, you know, but sort of one of it, one of the things is also, you know, I was looking for people who were representative in some specific way, but also who tied together as right. part of this collective narrative, um, right. that it was not a, opportunity to, um, there were a lot of really interesting personal details, um, of the attack of people's backgrounds of, uh, of people's futures. 
um, that I just didn't have room to include, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, I figured it was probably along the lines of there's a bazillion stories in this book. And some of the best moments are when um, you have people who you're hearing from a person and then you realize that that person ran into another person on the stairwell or that they were trapped together and you kind of like tie these people together or when you have an image that goes with the story and all of that. It was really, that stuff was really moving to me as a reader. So what do you feel like, I'm, we're going to move off the book. Normally we don't talk this mm-hmm. much about the book, but I just really <laughs> loved it. And I'm just so fascinated by how it came together. It's like such a huge undertaking. So we're going to spend more time on the book than normal. Um, but what did you feel like maybe surprised you when you were putting this all together and like what, like, or what did you learn or, you know, you, you work in security, like in national security. And this is something that's kind of like your bread and butter really when it, when you mm-hmm. boil it down, like, but I have to imagine in doing this process, like that maybe it changed your perspective a little bit about nine 11, or you, maybe you felt like the national perspective of nine 11 has changed or can you speak to any of that? Yeah. Um, so one of the things, and, and this is, uh, I'm really glad you asked this question because this is, um, you know, in an oral history, you know, there's not much of the writer's own voice. And so you're right. sort of, uh, I, I had sort of all of these observations and ideas that I don't get to put into the book, but I, I think are sort of interesting to, to draw out. And there are sort of a couple that really stood out for me. Um, one is, just realizing just how innocent America was on the morning of Tuesday, September the 11th, that we know that 9-11 changed everything. We, you know, we know that, but I don't, I had really not understood, even though I was alive then, uh, you know, just how innocent we, we really were at that time. And so for me, you see that in, the you see that innocence in what to me is the most interesting time period of 9-11, which is the 17 minutes from 846 when the first plane hits the North Tower to 903 when the second plane hits the South Tower. Right. Because America sort of sees that first crash and shrugs in a way that is like totally unimaginable to us today right. that, you know, you, you see, and I quote these people in the book, even sort of senior national security officials at that time in the book um, who are like, oh, well, that's super weird. Like, I guess there must be problems with air traffic control or maybe the pilot had a heart attack or, um, you know, that's just super weird. And I, there's this quote from a New York Harbor ferry captain who talks about how they watch on the boat coming into New York Harbor, the plane hit and they continue on to lower Manhattan, the ferry docks. And there are literally, you know, pieces of paper fluttering down on the ferry and the passengers as they're getting off. And every single commuter that morning gets off the ferry boat and goes to work in lower Manhattan. That sort of no one saw that crash and was like, you know what? I think I might just go home today. This just sort of seems like this isn't going to be a good day. And like people in the North Tower and the South Tower stay at their desks even after the first crash. Right. 
And then, you know, you, you see, you know, last month, the video of a motorcycle backfiring in Times Square right. and people run for their lives. You know, we just default now to thinking it's terrorism, thinking it's an attack, thinking it's a shooting in a way that was literally unimaginable to us on 9-11 until that second plane hits and we sort of realize that something bad is going on. Yeah, and you really get that sense in reading the book. And then this, the other sort of big theme that stands out for me is, and this is sort of, this is just like a deeply human one, is the extent to which incredibly small, meaningless decisions, the types that we make a thousand times a day that we never think about, uh, literally meant the difference between life and death that day. Mm. That, um, you know, Michael LaMonaco, the chef at Windows on the World, who would have normally been at his kitchen atop the North Tower at 830, um, stopped that morning to get a new pair of glasses at LensCrafters. And so was late arriving to work and didn't make it uh, before the plane crash. And 72 of his colleagues died that day, and he didn't. You have people, uh, you know, who at the last minute switch themselves on to the hijacked planes for one reason or another, or switch off of the hijacked planes for one reason or another. Um, Joseph Lott, who uh, was supposed to be attending a conference at Windows on the World that morning, uh, and was having breakfast in uh, in the Marriott Hotel at the base of the Twin Towers. And he, his colleague at breakfast gave him a new tie just as a gift. And he was like, oh, I'm going to go wear this tie today. Um, and he went to go put it on. And his colleagues went on ahead to the conference. And they died. And he didn't because he decided that morning to change his tie. I, I found it sort of this like incredibly fascinating way that sort of fate or destiny or whatever you want to call it sort of played into, you know, how people lived or died that day. Yeah. Um, okay. We're going to switch a little bit kind of to your process. One of my favorite mm -hmm. things that I always love to know is where did you do the writing of this book? Do you sit at a desk? Are you in your home? Are you at your office? Do you go to a coffee shop? Do you have snacks and beverages? Do you have rituals that you do? Kind of like set the scene for how you get in your writing mode. Uh, so, uh, this book, this book was a little different than my normal, um, right. uh, uh, process, um, which I'll say in a minute, my, my sort of normal process is I normally write at home, uh, first thing in the morning, um, from about 6am to about 9am and mm. then go on about my day. Um, and that's, you know, the rough process that I used to write, um, all of my previous books. Um, and I sort of do it in, you know, sitting at my desk, uh, at home, uh, you know, drinking coffee. And I, I like that quiet time during the morning where I don't feel like I'm missing out on something that I, you know, email hasn't started for the day. News hasn't started for the day. Um, 
this one, this book sort of ended up being like a, a little bit different because um, my wife and I actually had our first child oh, in the midst of it. Thank you. Um, and so uh, this book I actually wrote a lot of with my daughter uh, sort of sleeping next to me on the floor of my office. And, and that sort of changed for this book my perspective on writing this. Um, and I ended up dedicating the the book to her in part because I, uh, you know, I was sort of watching her as I was writing and thinking about, you know, the world that she is going to inherit and, right. you know, the downstream effects of, uh, of what I was writing about and how someday she will live them. How old is she now? Uh, so she's 14, 15 months now. Okay. And how long total did it take you to write the book? I know you said it started kind of in 2016 yeah. as an article. So, uh, so it was three years from article to book. Um, there was sort of about a year and a half or two years of material gathering. And then um, when I sort of got into the drafting of it, um, you know, it was, I probably spent uh, actually only about three or four months uh, writing the first draft of it. And then, you know, um, I've lost track of how much time I, I've said there, but then there was, uh, you know, four to six months of editing on the back end um, to, to narrow it down and organize it um, in, in the best possible way. Right. And what sort of stuff were you, Garrett, human being, not author necessarily, um, reading or watching or consuming while you were putting this book together? Uh, so I, uh, my, my day job um, is I, I cover national security for Wired and other publications. And then I work with the Aspen Institute cybersecurity program. And so a lot of what my uh, reading was during this time was, uh, you know, unrelated, uh, you know, national security or cybersecurity or technology books. Um, it, it's actually interesting um, uh, to me, there aren't that many books that have been written about 9-11 um, for such a big momentous topic. Right. There are, you know, uh, probably less than two dozen books that, uh, you know, are commercially, uh, that have been commercially done. Um, right. uh, and there, there's an, an increasing amount of fiction, um, that focuses on nine 11. Um, you know, Jonathan Saffron Fowler's uh, everything is illuminated, obviously. Right. Um, no, no, the other one, uh, extremely loud, loud, incredibly but, close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That one, the, the other one. The other um, one it is, uh, you know, obviously sort of uh, one of the key standouts in that genre. Uh, so I, you know, I read in the course of this a lot of the books about 9-11 um, and, and, you know, quote some of them and uh, in in this book. Um, but I was I was somewhat surprised um, when I was diving into this, how few books um, were about 9-11. Um, and then the other thing I, I was sort of simultaneously working on a big project about Vietnam mm. um, in the midst of this. Um, a lot of my day job over the last couple of years has been covering um, Robert Mueller and the Russia investigation. Um, and my second book was actually the one biography that exists of Robert Mueller. 
and which I wrote a decade ago. And so I went back uh, in the midst of this and was reporting out Robert Mueller's time in Vietnam, which had me reading a lot about Vietnam. And one of the things that um, I, I was sort of playing around with in my mind was um, I was born in 1981 and the Vietnam War to me has always felt like ancient history. You know, right. it was, you know, that it was decidedly history. It was something that had definitely happened in the past as I was growing up and sort of thinking about how, you know, if you are a teenager today, uh, you are just as removed from 9-11 as I am from the Vietnam War. Mm. It, you know, it was actually quite striking to me as I was sort of wading through the, these two different eras of history. And, 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 you know, that march of time is only going to continue. You know, if you for someone born today for my daughter, um, the 9-11 will be as removed as the Kennedy assassination was to me. Right. Uh, um, you know, born in 1981. And that's just sort of like a stunning way to think about history. Right. No, you're so right. Wow. I'd never really thought about it that way, but that's so true. I guess my last real question is for people who like your book and they're interested either maybe reading more good stuff, stuff that you thought was helpful or interesting about 9-11 or else like another book that kind of is in the same world, doesn't have to be the same topic, or maybe a great oral history that you've loved. Do you have any recommendations? Two books sort of stand out for me on um, 9-11 itself um, that I, I would really recommend. Um, the The first is that 102 Minutes book that okay. I mentioned um, that uh, was by Jim Dwyer and Kevin Flynn. And it came out pretty quickly after 9-11 and was and, and sort of still is probably the classic book okay. uh, on 9-11. But it just deals with the towers. Um, but but it's an incredibly good book. Um, and then the second that I think is uh, a really interesting uh, book is uh, it's called Touching History by Lynn Spencer. And it deals with the skies on 9-11 and sort of the um, the pilots and uh, the uh, air traffic controllers and the fighter pilots on 9-11, which is a thread of of my book. Um, mm -hmm. But Lynn, Lynn's book was really helpful in navigating that. And, and then sort of if you like uh, my book, um, although I'm not sure – whether like is the right verb uh, for the book. It's always so hard. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that there are sort of three other recent uh, incredible works of narrative nonfiction that I would uh, recommend. Uh, Adam Higginbotham's uh, Midnight in Chernobyl um, mm. was yes. uh, just a, a incredible book, uh, you know, as an author, uh, you know, I, I was amazed at the book for sort of what he was able to uncover and sort of trying to, in my own mind, like back out 
you know, how, did, how on earth do you even do the research to be able to write that sentence was um, incredible. Um, and then uh, another book from this year that I just couldn't recommend more is Patrick Radden Keefe's uh, Say Nothing uh, about the IRA uh, mm. and the, uh, the, the troubles in, in Northern Ireland, which was for me both educational and an incredible book. Um, and then I think sort of the other uh, narrative nonfiction, this book that, uh, that this year that just stands out to me uh, is Casey Sepp's Furious Hours um, about the author of To Kill a Mockingbird and, and, and another murder case in the South that she was interested in writing about. Uh, Casey Sepp is just an incredible writer and I sat there in awe about the books that, or the, the sentences that she crafted that are right. sort of more beautiful than anything I will ever write in my life. <laughs> I love that. A good compliment combined with a slight self-deprecation. It's my, my jam. Um, well, Garrett, thank you so much for being here. Your book, The Only Plane in the Sky, comes out tomorrow, if you're listening today, which is September 10th. Um, Thank you, Garrett, so much for being here. Thank you so much for reading. I appreciate it. It's so good. You guys go out and get it. It's going to take your breath away. It's pretty incredible. Um, and everyone, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you so much for listening to The Short Stacks. And thank you again to Garrett M. Graff for being our guest. I'd also like to thank Morgan Hoyt at Avid Reader Press for setting up this interview. Make sure you get your copy of The Only Plane in the Sky wherever you get your books. Everything we talked about on today's show can be found in the show notes. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. To join The Stacks Pack and get inside access to this show, go to patreon.com slash The Stacks. Make sure you're subscribed to this show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagiragis. This show was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. I will see you in the stacks. Stacks.